365 with Daniel, your daily dose of inspiration. Meg is a writer at heart. Her career started in journalism and in the last year she decided to start writing her own books. Actually, Sorrow and Bliss is being translated in Romanian and will be soon available. I hope you enjoy the episode. Then uh, we can start. And the first question is, who do you admire the most and why? Oh, wow, that's such a good question. I think that one of the writers that I admire the most is Anne Patchett, who's an American novelist, who I'm sure you know, who's written sort of eight books, I think maybe even eight novels and, you know, extra nonfiction. And I think I just, I mean, apart from how much I love her writing, I think that what comes through in her essays, including the most recent collection of essays called These Precious Days, is just this total endurance and tenacity and perseverance and this kind of intentness that she has on finding the joy in life and being present. And I think I'm 44 years old and I think I'm finally getting there, you know, and I think to see someone slightly ahead of you on that journey Um, you know, and when I read these essays, it's not like her life's been completely blessed, you know, and I just think that's been such a lesson to me as someone who's not massively into self-help or, you know, wellness or things like that. I think it was just really confronting in the best possible way. So that's who I admire. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what is one habit that you adopted recently and that paid off? Oh, well, gosh, I love these questions. One habit that I adopted lately is getting up much, much earlier than I used to. And I sort of, I I did that, I developed that practice having never been a morning person. I developed it when I was writing Sorrow and Bliss because it was something I was doing before and after work and on weekends. And I found that if I didn't write every single day, you know, the longer that you that you have a break, when you go back to it, you have to read the whole thing again because you can't remember it. And once it gets to a certain length, you know, that takes three days to read it. And so you lose, you know, that whole time again. So I realized that I was going to have to work on it every day. But I thought, you know, the prospect of getting up at 5.30 in the morning, it just goes against uh. nature. But I sort of trained myself into doing it. And then after the novel came out, I was so exhausted. I stopped. But now I, I just, I need to do it again because they're the best hours of the morning. I think, I mean, of the day, like for anything, you know, like your podcast, you're talking to me at seven o'clock in the morning, your time. And I think it's those those hours of no interruption and you bring your sort of freshest, I mean, once you've had coffee and whatever else you need, you bring your full kind of almost like the first fruits of your creativity to it and it's yes. before your boss starts emailing you and before your mom starts ringing you and you sort of you know also I think even just as a practice when it's a passion project and no one's waiting for it and you're not being paid and you've kind of got to hold all of this hope and you know drive it yourself I think that it's it's a statement to yourself that you really are dedicated to this thing and you're willing to give up sleep in order to get this thing. And if, on a purely functional level, no one is going to get up at five o'clock in the morning and come to their desk and then look at Instagram. Like if you got up, yeah. you're going to do the work. So I think that's, that's the practice that's probably borne out for me the most. Yeah. I guess it makes really a, a lot of sense in the creative field for sure. And uh, mm, I also did this like with the five, 5.30 for a couple of months I experimented and it was hard <laughs> so but, hard I mean you have to go to bed at 8 p.m that's for sure <laughs> yeah I wanted to ask you this like uh, did it change your like kind of your uh, hour of when you go to sleep you know like, yes were you aiming definitely. for 10 or 9 or something like that 
Yeah, something like that. Because I think that, you know, I think what you have to accept is that you can't do both. You can't have a social life and do writing at the same time. Um, you've got to give one up for the other. So I think if I had have been going out with friends at night and then thinking I could get up at 5.30, that was never going to happen. And so that's what it cost me. And that's why when anyone says, oh, how did you balance work and friends and novel? I'm like, I didn't balance them. I just did one thing and I let everything else (laughs) fall by the wayside. There was no balance whatsoever, but that's what it required. And that's what I was kind of willing to give it, even though I felt terribly guilty. Hmm. Did you, did you manage to wake up without an alarm? Like, did your body reach that uh, Oh, never. Natural... No, mm. never. I think that would only happen to a natural morning person, don't you, if such a person yeah. exists? <laughs> True. <laughs> what is uh, one moment when you felt most grateful? Oh, wow. Um, you, you keep flabbergasting me with these questions. I... When I lived in London from the age of sort of 22 to about 26, when I first got married and we moved to London and I had a baby when I was 25 and it was on purpose. I was very happy (laughs) to have a baby, but I was much younger than my friends. They hadn't had children yet. And I didn't, I'd had a job at the Times in the UK, which is where I really wanted, you know, I really wanted to be a journalist and this was a dream job, but I really felt if we could afford it, you know, by scrabbling a bit, then I would want to stay home with her and not go back to work for a while. And I did that and there was immense joy in it, but there was also loneliness in it because I didn't have friends my age and my friends were all, you know, with children and my friends were still at their jobs and, you know, you were suddenly on this completely different timetable. And I also wanted to be a novelist and a journalist. And I just remember feeling like, how is that ever going to happen when I've given up my job and I'm only 25? And of course, people are quite vocal telling you that, oh, you've messed it up. You're never going to have a career now because you've stepped out so early. And I used to go to a bookshop in London called Daunt Books. And I went there, you know, I'd get a couple of buses with the stroller and I would go there because I had nothing else to do in the day. I had no one to see and I was lonely. And I would go on these buses and it was just about having an object, you know, just about having a destination. And I would look at books. And I remember a couple of times when I was there, you know, sort of browsing and I don't know what set me off. I think it was just the the seeing all these novels on the wall and all of these books that had been finished by people and thinking, I'm never going to do this and just crying kind of silently crying in this bookstore. And, you know, 18 years later, a friend sent me a photograph from London of Sorrow and Bliss filling a whole window of that bookstore. And it just was this moment that, you know, there are so many amazing things that have happened for the novel, sort of public things and, you know, reviews, and they're all incredible. But I think the ones that mean the most are those personal moments where, you know, it was that thing of like, oh, I just had to wait 18 years. And then I would, you know, I would do the thing that I wanted to do because my daughter's 18 now. And I could show her and I was like, look, this is where, you know, I used to take you. And so that was sort of, that was an intensely meaningful moment that I was really grateful for. And I'm sorry that you can hear these Australian birds in the background. They are <laughs> raucous. And if you listen to any other podcast that I've ever recorded, you will hear them. They've become like my trademark because there's nothing yeah, I can nice. do about it. It's a branding element. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Subconsciously branding myself. <laughs> cool. I wanted to ask... Uh... If you could talk to your 25 uh, years old version, uh, would it uh, sound crazy what happened after 18 years old? 
after eighteen. Yeah, I wouldn't have believed it. I wouldn't have believed it. And I think, I think that I couldn't have even, you know, that idea that you could go back and tell yourself something or some single piece of advice that was going to help we me reach to get that to question, you. Actually, <laughs> yeah, but it can't be. I mean, it's a life's work. It's eighteen years of sort of having to teach myself these lessons. And some of the things, even though Sorrow and Bliss isn't autobiographical, a lot of what's contained in it are lessons that I've had to learn. I would say, you know, I sometimes I feel the hard way, you know, things that, decisions that Martha has to make, the protagonist, you know, even though we have different stories, she had to reach this place of taking responsibility or becoming accountable. And those are all the things I had to learn. And I think I was still learning them up to the age of 40. And I remember a real turning point for me because as I've talked about before, there was a whole book, a whole manuscript that came before Sorrow and Bliss that I had to throw away and start again. And I was quite bereft at that point and sort of thinking, oh my goodness, I'm still never going to do it. It really is over because I've even tried this time and I couldn't do it. Um, is that I just had to realize that and truly decide and understand that the things I want to do and the, where I want to be and get to and have, no one's going to help me. You know, I have a lovely husband and I have an editor and I have lots of friends, but they can't help me. Do you know, like you, it is totally and entirely up to you to sort of set your intention and to you know, keep bouncing back endlessly. And that's what I realized at 40, that there was no cavalry. No one was coming to save me. And it's just, I was going to be the one who gets up at 5.30 every morning alone. And that's how it's going to happen. <laughs> There's just no shortcut. Yeah. I think it's both a, a struggle and a, some kind of self responsibility you know yeah yeah exactly if you could teach your past skill to other people what would that be i teach one of my skills to someone else is that what you mean gosh i mean that's presumptuous to tell you i have any skills i (laughs) this is this might not stand up in translation but it's the less and fewer rule in english so when you're saying something like there's less water in a bucket, but you say, but there are fewer buckets of water. So it's a count or a no count noun. Mm. And it's not widely understood. And it's really important because if you're writing anything and you get it wrong, anyone who knows the rule judges you. And so it's like, if I could just teach the world less and fewer, but at the same time, <laughs> we have the words effect and affect, one is a verb and one is a noun, and I will never understand the rule of effect and affect. So even when my novel was coming out and I'm a published novelist, my editor was having to like mark it up in the text every single time and be like, Meg, I have told you, effect is it, affect is it. And I just, I, it won't go in my mind. It's too late. I needed to learn it at 12 and I didn't. Yeah, but uh, you still did it. So. Still got here in the end. <laughs> That's how people can help me. They can correct my grammar. Okay. <laughs> um. What are you currently currently reading? I am reading a book that's called One Day I Shall Astonish the World, and it's by a novelist called Nina Stibby, who's from the UK. And it's so funny that I find I can only read it in quite short bursts because it's just so dense and so full of jokes that I don't want to rush it. So I'm really enjoying that. It's not quite out yet, but it's coming out soon. And the other book I read that I really loved as well is called the Exhibitionist by Charlotte Mendelssohn, who's also a UK novelist. And that I think comes out next month. And so they were two just completely brilliant novels, the kind that makes you sort of think, oh, maybe I won't write another one because I sort of feel like we've got the perfect books and we don't need any any others. They're so good. 
Nice, nice. Um, what would you put on a flyer that would be seen by the entire world? Oh, wow. Sorry, again, these are just such, you know, it's funny because when you go on a sort of semi-book tour, even though it's it's virtual, you do get asked yeah. the same questions a lot and you find yourself kind of very graciously or gratefully reciting the answers almost verbatim. But I've never had any of these questions before, so I'm actually having to think about my answers. Um, what would I put on a flyer? I would put an advertisement for the podcast How to Fail, which is by Elizabeth Day. It's again, it's from the UK, and she interviews these incredibly fascinating public figures about three failures that have happened in their life and how they overcame them or how they worked with them or what they learned out of them. And I started listening to it coincidentally around the time that this novel of mine had tanked. And it just made me feel, you know, that glimmer of a sense that because I think when you fail, the pile on that occurs in your mind is to say you're the only person who has ever failed this badly at this thing. You know, no one else would be stupid enough to do this. You know, you're such an embarrassment. Don't try it. And it just made me think, oh, actually, some incredibly admirable people who've done enormously, you know, wildly successful things have actually succeeded and it's come out of failure. It's not just, you know, sort of, but, you know, as well as it's because of and I think so I would I would advertise that around the neighborhood yeah, yeah. for sure I think it's part of the the, the process I guess mm-hmm. the I, journey uh, just a small example <laughs> like with failure because it's a funny one I remember when I started doing the podcast my first episode I forgot to press the record <laughs> oh I've done that as well as a journalist and I've interviewed like a celebrity and I haven't recorded it. Now I use two recorders because I'm so terrified. But there was one with a really famous British comedian and I love her. And I was so, I think I was just so overwhelmed by talking yeah. to her that I panicked and I recorded what I was saying, but not what she was saying. Like it only came through my voice. So you sit down to write this feature that was due the next day, sort of the deadline was the next day for a magazine. And I had to just try and reconstruct it from memory. I didn't get sued and sent to jail, but that's what I was convinced was going to happen because I'd basically had to cobble the interview back together from things she said. (laughs) (laughs) You know that cold fear that suddenly hits you when you realize the second you realize what you've done, you're like, oh, no, so bad, so bad. Yeah, it's bad. It really is (laughs) a funny one. Who is your favorite cartoon character and why? Mm, Do you know, I think it might be, oh, this is, yes, this is so good. But I'm going to have to come back to it because there's so many. Who is my favorite cartoon character? Um, No, I have to pass for now. We have to return to it at the end. I have to think who and why. Mm. (laughs) Watch this space. What fear? did you overcome and what did you learn from the experience oh okay well I was so scared of writing because when you write a novel or when you do anything creative or kind of artistic that no one requires of you no one needed me to write a novel no one was asking me for a novel you know the same way no one's asking someone for their screenplay or their work of art I was just so afraid not of doing a bad job, although there was some of that, but I was so afraid of telling people that that was my ambition, 
because it felt so exposing and so sort of, you know, I think I consider writing fiction to be such a prize and the highest sort of ambition at all. It's a bit like if I went around telling people I wanted to be a model and they would look at me and be like, um, uh, okay, that's very sweet, um, but we'll be the judge of that, you know, like how dare you kind of think that that's something that you're equal to. And so there was this almost shame attached to telling people that's what I want to do and then, of course, compounded by looking at what I was doing thinking, well, they're, they're right, like I shouldn't, I can't do this thing that other people seem to be able to do. But I was interviewing the author Tessa Hadley last Friday and we were talking about that. And because she had expressed that too, and she didn't, she's written eight novels now, but she didn't publish her first one until she was 46. And she'd written four failed books before she got one, you know, that were all rejected before she got one published. And she was saying, just use the shame, just use the shame. It's incredibly motivating because you're so, you know, concerned to not look like an idiot that you work really hard and that you will not just pass in something that's okay. You know, you're so scared of embarrassing yourself that you can almost harness it like a superpower. So that's what I will be doing next time because the shame doesn't go away. And I'm trying to write another book now. And the feeling is just as acute as ever it was because just because you've written one book before doesn't mean, you know, that the next one's going to be guaranteed to be good or to succeed. For sure. And what what I see in the creative zone, but also a bit in the tech kind of approach, like on the startup field, like with application, is that it's kind of permitless. You don't have to ask for permission to do it anymore. Exactly. That's true. It's easier than ever, you know. Yeah, but it feels like it does, doesn't it? Especially, like it feels like it requires permission, especially when you look at the people who you admire who do it. You know, if I look at Hilary Mantel or someone, I don't think, oh, I could do that. I'm going to have a go at that. You know, I I could definitely write a novel too. You kind of think, oh, no, it's so much more intelligent and, you know, I could never equal that. And maybe you can't equal it and you can't make someone else's podcast or start someone else's company but you're not trying to make everybody's, you're just trying to make yours, you know, and no one else can write your book or write your screenplay or, you know, design your whatever it is you want to do. So you kind of just have to think there's something that I bring to it and maybe I need to hone my craft and I still need to learn skill and technique and I have to practice, 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 but that will mean that I get to write my book and no one else can do that. And I'm giving myself permission to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's two sides here. I think it's first your, I mean, I think it's like the the idea of you do it and that's in your control and you can do it. And I think what's out of control, more or less, it's what happens afterwards, you know, mm-hmm. like, will it sell? Will it reach that number of people mm-hmm. and so on? I yeah. And I think for me, is- that was, yeah, because I'd come from this place of failure. I think that the temptation could have been, you know, when I had finished this book and my editor was saying it's good and we, you know, we want to publish it. I, one way that I could have gone would be to say, and it better succeed because I worked so hard and I started again and I'm really owed success and I'm owed an audience and I better make money or, you know, anything like that. But what I really felt, and it wasn't that I had to convince myself of it, I really felt it was that because this was the book that had, that had shown me that I could start again from nothing and that I was sort of brave enough and that I had not just begun again and believed I could write but I was really joyful in the process it was a really good time like once the novel really began to take shape I loved it and I had these six like really blissful months when it was just me and this new book that I was working on and I loved it 
So I knew that even if it came out and it didn't make a single dollar and the only person who bought one was my mom and, you know, it was not a commercial success, it had already been a success for me. And so I couldn't retrospectively turn around and say, oh, it was a failure because I wouldn't, if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't be a writer anymore. And so it had already served that function and and it had given me so much joy that I kind of could just release it into the world and be like, if anyone else enjoys it too, I'm really happy, but I had a good time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nice. If you could meet one person that you haven't met, who would it be? Why? And what would you talk about? Oh, I think it would be Hilary Mantel because Mm. even though I find her novels very challenging and I haven't read all of them, she is such an incredible, I've read a lot of her autobiography and memoir and her sort of long form essays and things about her illnesses and how her life has really been totally prescribed by chronic illness and chronic disease. And she is a person who should not have had a career almost based on the number of obstacles that have you know, that were in front of her and have continued to be thrown up as she's gone on. And yet she's had this extraordinary, dazzling, you know, a career to beat other careers. I mean, she's won two bookers. Nobody else has won two booker prizes. And yet she's in chronic pain all the time. And it's she's the kind of person who is so singular and such a product of her own strength and intention that she's the kind of person I would just want to sit within her aura, you know, and kind of soak up just by being in proximity mm. as if there could be lessons Observing. to learn and exactly. Yeah, yeah. And just be, and just be like, well, how are you doing this today? And when everything is arrayed against you, how are you doing it? And there's this amazing essay that if you have show notes, I'll send you a couple of links that one that she wrote about the joy of stationery, but you know, as in papers and pens that actually becomes a whole exposition on the art of writing. And then there's another one um, just about, just about her life and her surroundings. And they're so beautiful that I have them printed out and I routinely have a little read of them when I need a boost. Okay. So she is the person. I hope she listens to this podcast and invites me over for tea. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> I should talk about her more, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, what is something that most people learn only after it's too late? I think it might be that, and this is what I had to learn, and this is what I tried to put into the book, that we don't get the things that we want in life. You might get one or two of them, but you don't get all of them. And the things that you do get or that you have are sometimes lost inside the shadow of the thing that you don't have. So if you want so badly a house, for example, you know, to own your own house, in the constant striving for it and the constant awareness of the deficit and all the shame that you don't have it or the longing or the anger, you miss the fact that you have amazing friends or lovely children or a good husband or a brilliant job. And it's all subsumed by the wanting for that one thing. And one day the wanting might pass or you get to a point where you simply realize it isn't going to happen. And then you would look back and you've missed it. You didn't see that you had this brilliant marriage or that you, you know, that you are someone who's been blessed with incredibly brilliant 
massive number of friends. So I think it's that. And I know it all sounds really cheesy to be like, oh, well, just look at what's in your hand. But the reason those things are cliches is because they are actually true. But it's so easy, doesn't it, just to focus on everything that's lacking and do all the comparison stuff. And I just, I mean, I do it all the time. I'm chronically guilty of it. But I just, I just know that I do not want to look back in 20 years time and be like, look what you had. And I, I try to think, what do I have right now that I will look back on and think, oh, that was a good period of my life. You know, I was right. I was in a good period and I want to try and live like I'm in a time that I'm going to look back on, you know, and be aware of that. So if that makes sense, that's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Uh, for me, it reminds me uh, a quote that's more or less about number the number of desires that you have, and it's mm -hmm. like a, a healthy man has hundreds of desires, and an unhealthy man has just one. That's brilliant. I've never heard that before. I've never heard yeah. that before, and it's true because life just doesn't have a way of serving you up the brilliant one single thing you want on a lovely plate on a lovely set table, does it? It just throws things at you, and you catch them or not. Yeah. That's yeah. true. You, you catch them or not. Mm, if tomorrow you could keep from uh, your material stuff only what fits in a backpack, uh, what would you keep? That is a great question. And I can tell you exactly the answer is awesome. that I grew up in New Zealand and I left when I was 16 and I moved here and it was another to Australia and it was another period of kind of loneliness because you do not leave a school just about in year 12 and start all over again and make brilliant friends for life so but I did have amazing friends in New Zealand including one called Lauren and she and I used to write to each other all the time and I have all her letters but what I have that I love even more is I have a notebook and I just found it the other day in a big box of bits and pieces it's a little notebook and we used to write in it and post it back and forward to each other. Um, so it was like a text thread in analog time. So you would write half a page and then they would comment and you know send it back. And so this notebook we sent back and forward for about a year. But the rule was that we were we used the same envelope every single time and you just stuck another label over it. And, you know, then sellotape and glue and it's sewn up one side with wool and then it was shut once with chewing gum and it's got stamps and all sorts of things on it. And the envelope now is about an inch thick because it was used so many times and it's just such a precious thing. But I think what's amazing about it, because I actually read it for the first time the other day, is that she's an actress and I'm an author and this was in 1995 and they were the things that we said we wanted to be. And everything that we are is sort of contained in that notebook, in a glimmer, like the things that we didn't know. And um, she has a, a film director back then that she used to love, Jane Campion, who she used to obsess over, yeah. you know, the way you do when you're a teenager. And yeah, yeah, yeah. she's just finished her first film, making her first film with her. And then an actress that I also loved, I can't tell you her name yet, but she's making the film adaptation of Sorrow and Bliss. And I said to my friend when I found this notebook, I'm like, oh, we were manifesting. Like, who else should we have wished to meet? Because we met them. We made, we brought it into existence in this notebook in 1995. So I would pack that into my bag. Awesome. Awesome story. <laughs> um, this might be hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's okay. If you could know the absolute and total truth to one question, what question would you ask? Wow. This is... Um, one total question. I 
I mean, does everybody say why do bad things happen to good people? Because that kind of is the ultimate question of the human condition, isn't it? It's hard mm. not to go too massive. It's hard not to be like, what's it all for? What does it all mean? And is there an afterlife? I think the question I ask myself the most, to be honest, and not to sound glib, is like, what is for dinner? Because as well as being an author, I have two teenage children and a husband. And a while ago, like literally years ago, when my daughter was really young, I was sitting at the breakfast table and I was like looking off to one thing. And she's like, I know what you're thinking about. And I'm like, what? Thinking she might be like meaning of life. And she's like, you're thinking about what's for dinner. And I'm like, I am. I'm thinking what's in the freezer. And it's all I'm truly ever thinking about is how long have I got until I have to stop work and make dinner? Because that Carl over Kanausgaard, that's the thing I liked about his amazing My Struggle books, which I couldn't actually struggle through. But he was like, it's a surprise. Every single night, it's a surprise that dinner is needs to be made again. So true. So that's something to do with the mystery of life. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you can't focus? Oh, I can tell you exactly. I mm. have just discovered through a friend an app called Brain FM, and it has become uh... a religion to me. And the reason for that is because the universe is trying to break me by having every single one of my neighbors renovate their house, but not simultaneously consecutively so for the last like two years somebody has been excavating sandstone within my earshot and it has nearly killed me but I I continue to try and I was just you know doing whatever listening to kind of YouTube bird song going crazy and then someone told me about brain FM and that is like a dark magic there I don't know how they do it but there is something that completely brings your world right into your ears and there must be some frequency of that music that distracts the part yeah. of your brain that's like, oh, I'm just gonna, I think I really need to go and have another shower or, you know, I think I really need a yogurt right now. So it keeps me at my desk. And the other thing I have to do that will make me stay focused, like before the disruption has already happened, I have to leave the house and come back again in the morning and start working. I can't just get out of bed and come to my office and start working. I have to go and walk the dog or get a coffee or literally go outside for 15 minutes and then come back. It's just something about resetting the brain, I think. And yeah, I'm, I'm a be, massive be, one for, the, yeah, I'm a massive one for sports? routine. Well, no, I just think, I think that in terms of like writing and how to, you know, concentration and all of those things, I just think you can save yourself an awful lot of the daily effort by having all of these tricks that tell your brain it's time to work. Are you the same like you... You work in one place. I wear basically the same outfit. I start at the same time. You know, I, I don't see people during the day or any of those things because I think by the time you sort of, you sat down, you've put your tea in roughly the same place and it's eight o'clock and all those things, your brain is like, oh, okay, we're here to work. I'm just going to work then. And it heads off some of that sort of efforting that is required when these are the jobs we do that we're not paid for. Uh, myself with what I'm playing recently is the, The idea that I, I don't consider a day a day. I rather look at a week as a day. And uh, in, wow, in that that's day, profound. in that uh, the day, I, I set myself some number of hours that I allocate to certain stuff. And that's how I judge myself if I had a good day. Mm. Because I think a day, each day, it's, a day is too short to be conquered, you know? 
That is so true. That is such a gift. I have never thought about that before. And that is really going to help me because I always get to the end of the day and look back on it and think, did I do a good job? Am I basically a good person because I put in this number of hours? But the day has an incredible way of throwing up distractions and interruptions and things that don't happen and obligations that most of the time you don't meet your perfect eight hours. But if you say like that, I want to do 20 hours this week, if you're not there by the end, you just do 10 on Saturday, you know, and you can still look at it as a success. And it is that thing, yeah, Yeah. to be kinder to yourself because I do – struggle enormously with guilt and a sense that I've never quite done enough and you know I could have done more and better and so I think that would be a real kind of you know technique to manage some of the guilt which is very noisy sadly it's noisier than brain fm in my head yes <laughs> guilt can be very noisy yeah so yeah mm, that's what I try it doesn't work all the time but uh, <laughs> it buys me some time <laughs> yeah <laughs> Exactly. Um, what's a belief that you hold which many people disagree with? I think this is something I've come to see since lockdown, living in very close proximity to, you know, loved ones, people you definitely love, but people you didn't expect to spend 24 hours a day with for, you know, 105 days or whatever it was here. I'm sure it was worse where you are. But you know how popular wisdom and popular psychology says it's really good to express your feelings you should always express your feelings you should always get your feelings out make sure you tell the person that you they've upset you and during that I was like no just bottle it up just bottle it up if you have a problem with someone and it's not major and it's just a daily you know irritation or something they said they probably didn't mean just sit on it until it goes away because it will. And you're just doing an incredible public service to just contain it within yourself and not turn it into this big thing. And, you know, if you're in a foul mood all day, by speaking it out, it kind of makes it real and it makes your partner or your kids or whoever have to deal with it and have this interaction. Whereas if you just deny it and just be like, yep, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, tomorrow you will be fine. So I just applaud people who choose not to express their feelings. That's that's my favorite kind of person who I strive to emulate. Okay. Um, is there any exact method that leads us to what we want or dream about? I think, well, I think the self-talk, the monologue is probably the singular key to whether you're going to do something or not. And I don't mean that you need to find a point at which you can be super positive and be like, yes, I can do it. I can do it. Because you don't actually know. You have to try. And I don't think it's realistic to think, to convince yourself first that you're brilliant and of course you can't fail and just fake it till you make it. But I think that the idea that, you know, and this is again something I had to learn, that I sit down to do my work and I'm scared and I'm unproven and I'm potentially going to embarrass myself and I don't know how to do this thing and I've never done it before and it's really scary and there are loads of people who are better at it than me. Be that as it may, I'm going to do it anyway. The the be that as it may was some kind of key phrase for me that it just meant all of those things are still true. I can never convince myself they're not true because Ian McEwen exists and Julian Barnes exists and Hilary Mantel exists. So I can never come into this thinking I'm the best novelist on earth, but I can think that's all true. They all exist. 
be that as it may, I'm still going to try over here in my little shed surrounded by incredibly noisy parrots. I'm just going to do what I can. So I think, I think that's, that's the trick because otherwise you just won't try. Those facts will be overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. That's the trick. And uh, this was the last one. And we still have the cartoon character if you want to go for it. I do. I've come up with it. When she was about six, my daughter drew me a picture of a superhero that she had invented and her name was Gum Girl. And she had a bubble gum, a pink bubble gum bubble that was bigger than her head drawn out the side. And it's still on my wall. And there's something, I don't know what it is, but there's something intensely empowering about Gum Girl. She just doesn't give uh, rats, whatever, Gum Girls. She's my, she's my spirit animal. So that's my favorite cartoon. Awesome. Thank you, Meg. It's my pleasure. It. This is my first time on a Romanian podcast, and it's such an honor. <laughs> Thank you. I've I'm loved to hear that. every minute of it. We reached the end of the episode. Our host, Daniel, is always searching for new guests. If you have any people in mind that you want to see in the podcast, please share the names via social media. Want to support our journey? Please review, share, and subscribe to our social channels and help us inspire more and more people. See you in the next episode.